everybody. It's Craig here, and I think I got another really good one for you. This is going to be interesting. I know I love it. I stumbled into this guy, Thomas Lawrence. Uh, this is uh, one of those crazy guys, one of these people who inspired me to get into backpacking and get out there into the backcountry. But he does it. <laughs> he does it a lot tougher than I do it. I only do little things like going up into the high Sierras, twelve thousand feet. You know, off off-trail, map and compass stuff. This guy does crazy shit like climb the seven summits and uh, makes attempts at Mount Everest. And uh, this is Thomas Lawrence. He's the founder and CEO of Benefit Recovery Group. He's an attorney, man. There are two of those in my family, so I know what this guy's like. He's just going to be tough as nails. Um, hey, Thomas, I want to welcome you to the podcast. I'm really dying to find out what your story is. Hey, Craig. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, my pleasure, man. I, it was great. You reached out to me. I think you're you're trying one of the products or you're trying a few of them, but um, uh, you're going to be using AltaField to see if we can get a boost up there in Everest. So, of course, I was really excited to, to participate in that and uh, had to hear your story. So first off, how does a, well tell us about your your legal background? We'll get right into climbing Everest. You've had a couple of you've had an attempt there. I want to talk about the seven summits, but let's just get a little bit of background on who you are as a lawyer and what you do. Yeah, great, thanks. I uh, I grew up in Corpus Christi, Texas, and uh, went to went to law school in Houston in South Texas, and started practicing law in San Antonio in 1993. And ultimately made it to Memphis, Tennessee in 95, where my career really, really started to, to, to grow and change. I was doing a lot of work for large employers all over the country in the, in the employment space and then began to specialize in employee benefits law and, and found really a niche where a lot of the people who do high-level employee benefits and ERISA work, this work that I do was what was uh, – wasn't quite. It was a little too lowbrow for them, but it was. But it was more complicated than what are your what your normal insurance defense lawyers do. So uh, I help employers go around and save money in a little niche area of of ERISA. So that's uh, it's been a it's been a great ride, and uh, and I, I've I've had some I've had some done some great stuff and had had a lot of fun. You recently wrote a uh, a guest post in Biz Journal about goal setting. Do you recall doing that? I do. Yeah. And one of the things that you did in there was said something along the lines of each of us are born with a unique set of characteristics. And I wanted to know what you think is unique about you and what sets you apart from other lawyers. Um, let's say lawyers and then let you segue that into the climbing community. We'll, we'll jump into. So take me what separates you from other lawyers in this context and what what makes you as crazy as the rest of those other climbers, but different, too. Yeah, I, I think I think really for me, as as far as being a lawyer and an entrepreneur, it's it's having the ability to really do what I do what I did I, um, is see an opportunity and and bring and bring the pieces together to to create a business, and uh, and and one of the things that I've that I've been pretty good at is identifying talent and uh, and bringing in people who are who are smarter than I am and who who have gifts and abilities that are different from mine and can and can uh I guess compensate in areas or make up for areas where I'm where I may not be as skilled. And so I have a I have an amazing general counsel who's really good at the details and really good with uh with uh client agreements and and those types of things. And I have a, a chief strategy officer who's who's brilliant at making sure that that the again the details of the business work well. So I, I wasn't I think some I think some of us, especially entrepreneurs, can sometimes think that that we have to be good at everything. And the and the thing is, none of us none of us are. And so 
the article I, I read is about the strategic coach program, uh, which is Dan Sullivan's program, which is based in Toronto, but I go there quarterly in Chicago uh, for entrepreneur, entrepreneurial training. And uh, it's just, it's just been wonderful over the years to really understand what I'm good at, what I'm not good at and where I need to bring in people to, to shore up what I'm not as good at. As far as, as far as the climbing piece, Really, I, I, you know, I kind of, from my athletic background, I played football in high school. Again, being a Texan, that's what uh, uh, most, you know, that's most what Texans uh, do. They play football. That's, that's right. And if, if they're not playing football, they're in the stands watching it. There's two things that are huge in Texas. Two things: football and barbecue. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And uh, and I grew up, I grew up playing football. Played a couple of years in college. And one of the things that I learned from that, from doing that, is that I'm I'm a pretty good grinder. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't a great athlete. Uh, most of the success I have is through just hard work. And, and that's, you know, really being in the mountains for the kind of climbing I do, climbing, you know, the, the bigger mountains, the, the long, the long routes. It's, it's all about being able to take one step at a time and, and learn how to control your breath and control your heart rate and, and keep moving. Um, I'm dying to hear about breath work in the death zone. So we'll get, we'll get there in a little bit. But, uh, do I have this right that in 2001, 2002, and three, you summited Mount Rainier? That's correct. Man, what is so cool about the top of Mount Rainier that you did it three times in a row back, you know, back to back? Well, so I was, the, the, the way I found out about Mount Rainier, I was in a deposition in San Antonio in, uh, 1994 and I was talking to the opposing lawyer and, and uh, you know, think about 1994, it's kind of before the internet, before you could really go out and, you know, you had to, you had to actually order, a, I think probably order, I would probably order materials about climbing Mount Rainier. And so I hadn't seen a, I, I'd only seen a picture in, in something I got in the mail. Uh, and so I was talking to this lawyer, and he, I said, you know, what are you going to do this summer? We're waiting for the witness to show up or something. He said, well, I'm going to go climb Mount Rainier. I just looked at him, and I thought, wow, that's really – that's that's amazing. I didn't know that kind of normal people from San Antonio, Texas could go climb Mount Rainier. And he explained to me, yeah, you know, you can go out there. It takes about three days. You can rent the gear. They'll train you and all this. And I'd had some experiences, uh, you know, my, my brother who's eight years older than I am who really inspired me to be more, be single minded about my athletic efforts and really be focused. He had, he had introduced me to John Denver as a kid. And, uh, so I, you know, you know, you can't really listen to John Denver and not have a love for the mountains. And then, then I go into a summer camp out uh, in Lakey, Texas, out, out the hill country. And, uh, and we did a lot of rappelling off these 100, 200 foot cliffs. So I went out in 2001. And, uh, and I was trained, uh, in that first, that first attempt by a guy named Nawang Gambu, who was a Sherpa, who was the first, the, the first person to climb to summit Mount Everest twice. That first attempt was, was, it was a, it was a grind. And I made it out of just, just sheer, just want to. And, uh, my brother-in-law at the time and I did it together. And we, and we I, I'm convinced that either, if either of us had not been there, the other one would not have made it because that's the way we, we did it. So I wanted it. So I wanted to do it again to, uh, to show myself that I could train hard and enjoy it a little more. So important to point out. I'm going to emphasize what you said. It is a grind. Uh, I haven't done anything as hard as you've done, but uh, whether you're going to 15,000 feet or, or 12,000 feet, if that particular climb is designated a grind, 
it is work. It is hard to do to lug up 50 pounds, 30 pounds, whatever you're carrying. And sometimes just straight up, every step is a grind. And I mean, you get to the point when you get up to the summit there, you're, you're ready to be there. You may be smiling, taking great pictures, but you're ready to turn around and get home too, because it's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. These things are grinds. And the other thing you said that, uh, just for people who don't know, that's right. There are walls in Texas here. It's thought of as uh, flat. Texas ain't flat, man. West Texas isn't so flat. Uh, Austin is known as hill country and, and, uh, San Antonio, where you're from, you know, uh, got a lot of hill country down that way too. So you also summited Denali too. You took on Denali and, and took that down, right? That's right. Uh, 2016. That's a big one. Yeah, it was. That's a big one, man. Tell me about that. Well, Denali. So that was the that was the first of the seven summits that I that I uh, successfully summited, uh, and I, you know, when I was trying to decide whether I was gonna what I was gonna do first, I wanted to do one of the harder ones, and I, I talked to several guides, and they said, well, you know, a lot of people, you know, you talk to you talk to uh, half the or you talk to guides out there, half of them are going to tell you that Denali is just as hard as Everest because you have to carry a 70-pound pack, you have to drag a 70-pound sled, and you have no help, no Sherpa. And uh, You are the Sherpa. You're the climber and the Sherpa. That's that's right. So <laughs> yeah. so I thought, well, you know, since it's it's not very far away, and oh, yeah, uh, it's, it's close, a, no problem. Yeah, it's a sled seventy pounds. It's close, no big deal. Let's go. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So <laughs> so uh, you know when you when you uh, when you when you go when you go there, you you get into a, a little town that you know you can read a lot about. It's called Takitna, which is like a a little hippie town. It's it's really it's really wonderful. And uh, but then when you when you actually head out to climb Denali. You get on these uh, these planes. Uh, that I believe they're called. Some are called. Some are otters and some are beavers. But they're they're planes that have they have skis on them. So they land on the glacier. They drop you off with all your with your stuff to for 21 days, and uh, and they leave. And so it's it's a little bit surreal. You know, you look around and there's a there's a big base camp area where everybody's camped, and it's just you. You're Climbing team, I guess there were there were three or four uh, or four or five climbers, and then and then two guides. You know, one of the things you do whenever you on one of these climbs, you when you first get to the uh, meeting point, you look at everybody and think, you know, what are these guys? What are all these guys like? And and you and you want to you hear their climbing experience. You're like, okay, how are they going to be? How they're going to be as teammates and all this kind of thing. And and one of the things that happened to us early on in that climb is two of the two of the of the climbers. They had, they had done – I think they had done some things. They had just not done anything nearly as hard as Denali, and they admitted pretty quickly that they weren't really prepared. So we got a day or two in, and uh, several of us were having to carry – or were having to take loads off of these guys just so they could – attempt to keep going and it wasn't very long into the climb that those two those two bailed so uh once that happened uh it was it was really pretty smooth the guy we had, a, we had an amazing guy his name was john race uh out of leavenworth washington he had i, th- I want to say he had summited denali uh 19 times and if you look at the guy he looks he looks like he's about 20 so i'm not sure how that worked i'm kidding he's he's older than that he just looks like he's 20 because he's been living in the mountains but uh Denali is unbelievable because at the at the fourteen thousand foot camp and the seventeen thousand foot camp, when you leave those camps, you have these almost well, not vertical but really really steep climbs of about I want to say a thousand fifteen hundred feet. One of them you have an ascender that you have to hold on to because if you slip, you want to be able to stop yourself. I don't know if you're familiar, uh, Craig, with what an, with an ascender, but it's something you hold on to with with one hand. It's called also called a jumar. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, 
Yeah. Okay, so if you so that if you do slip, it, it catches and it will keep you from falling. So uh, yeah, you know, coming out of both those camps, really, really steep areas that uh, that tend to tend to wear you down pretty well. But uh, Denali was it was amazing. It felt like a, it felt like a really big accomplishment to to reach the summit uh, because they they had a pretty high failure rate that year in 2016. I want to say the. I want to say the summit rate was around 50%, maybe a little less than that, at least for part of the season. I mean, I was really, really happy to make it to the summit. Man, you brought up so much stuff there. Uh, it's you know, you talked about the people bailing out. Let me tell you, man, it's easy to bail out. It's really easy. This going back to what we said a minute ago. This is a grind, and sometimes it just isn't what people thought it would be. I mean, way harder than people thought it would be, and they just go, you know what? I thought I wanted to do this, but it's just not what I want to do. And that happens, man. That happens a lot. And and even when you're ready for it, I mean, I have to mentally prepare for some of the stuff I do because it is the grind you're talking about. And I have to tell myself months in advance, okay, you're going to hate this. It's going to stink. There's going to be a lot about it you don't like. But there are so many glorious points during the day that make up for – if 90% of it is horrible, the 10% that's glorious – outshines the 90%. That's horrible. And you, you live for those moments. You live for the evening. You talked about the uh, evening, meaning the sun. You, you, there's no light. You just see the stars. If it's a good night, it's it's unbelievably beautiful out there. You also brought up uh, something I want to touch on because it's going to come up later when we talk about Everest. Um, the camps. All right. So there were multiple camps on uh, on Denali. Tell us why there are multiple camps and what you do there and why they matter. Well, on on Denali, you know, one of the things that you that you have to do is you have to do uh, you have to do carries, and you have to carry you know half your gear uh, from one camp to the next, and and cache it, and then return back to you know when I say cache it, I mean dig a hole in the snow, store bury it. all, yeah. store it. Yeah. That's right. Come back, come back to the lower camp, and then and you know spend the night and go back up. But that also serves another purpose that I think is is probably what you really want to know about, and that is the whole acclimatization process. So that's right, that's right. But you know what? You uh, it didn't occur to me what you just said. I didn't. So this is really interesting. I know when you when you're doing the Continental Divide Trail or any of the Triple Crown trails, uh, what Tom is talking about is caching. You know, pushing your food ahead so when you get there, there's food, and then pushing your food ahead to the next stop, and you do this for three thousand miles on the Continental Divide Trail or you, or some other method. But this is caching, and I didn't know that you had to do that on Denali. I thought that you would just take it with you to each one. So you not only acclimatize at each of these camps, but you, you have to go up, acclimatize, cache your food, then go back down. That's right. Now, I, I sort of stole the floor there. Go, continue with that. Walk us through. How, what, I only know conceptually. I've never done it. So tell us what it's like. Yeah. So uh, it, I, I don't, I only really remember the, the 14,000 foot camp and the, in the, in the 17,000 foot camp, but I know that there was another camp lower uh, you know, after base camp, probably I want to say around maybe eleven thousand feet, where so that that was our first camp, and uh, and then we you know we spent the night there, uh, and then we hiked, we took half of our gear up to up to the fourteen thousand foot camp. Now we that may have, actually we may have spent two nights there because the whole the whole thing Denali takes. Uh, uh, you know, on average, 21 days to summit because because of the acclimatization, because of the weather, because of the of the caching process. But it was something like you know staying staying at 11,000 feet for a couple for a couple of days, 
maybe even lower than that. Maybe staying in base camp a couple of days too, just to, to acclimatize there. But then, but then going up to fourteen thousand foot feet with half your half your gear, storing and coming back down to eleven thousand, sleeping. You know, climb high, sleep low is kind of one of the, the way that that the, the mountain guides. Yeah, very um, important altitude training technique. Yeah, so you're you're going you're going high to to uh, encourage the, or stimulate the body to build more red blood cells, which will carry more oxygen throughout the body. Then you come back down and sleep low, and so that can a process can happen. And then and then finally, you know, you get to you get to uh, seventeen thousand foot. Actually, I want to say. We didn't take the sleds beyond the fourteen thousand foot camp. So, so from we we may have even we might I don't think we did a double carry. We did we did one carry up to seventeen thousand, uh, came back down, took our final load to seventeen thousand, and then and then pushed to the summit and came back. What is the? That's so much work. What's the payoff here? What What is the payoff? What are you doing this for? What? I guess that's two questions. So let's stick with the easy one. What's the payoff? You're doing this climb. What's What's the uh, summit at Denali? What's the total height? A uh, little over twenty thousand. Twenty thousand. So what's the payoff? You know, it's I, I I think I think the payoff is being able to to know that you can that you can do something very difficult that you can that you can first of all the payoff the payoff really starts in the training. You know, the, there, there's a because because you know that to, to get the payoff, you have to be able to convince yourself to be disciplined to to not only train but to determine to to determine either through a coach or through your own experience what the right training is and be smart about that. Be smart about not overtraining, uh, but then to make sure you're doing enough. But then to to do that day in and day out, so that when you do get into the the quote you know to game time that that you can perform and but then but then when you get to the summit to to have the satisfaction to know that yeah I was able to do it I was able to you know train for for 9 months or a year or whatever it is that I was able to you know to push myself to eat right, to train, to get sleep, to do all those things that were going to set me up to be able to actually get to the summit. You know, I know what it was that piqued my interest in in climbing, the climbing community. And um, we'll talk about that in just a little bit because it ties into what's coming up for you. Uh, but what what was the catch for you? What What was the tipping point? You weren't climbing at one point in your life. You're a lawyer, you're successful, and you're doing other things. What was the tipping point exactly? What what made you think, damn, I got to do that instead of be a triathlete because you're a healthy, fit, athletic guy. There's a lot that you can do. Anyone who can get up Denali the way you've described it can do you know, a hundred other things. What was it about climbing that grabbed you? I, I think I think one of the things goes back to you know you, what you asked about earlier uh, the unique ability you know I I think I'm my body and my mind are sort of are sort of suited for this endurance type um, you know climbing and and I love you know I love the whole notion of putting one foot in front of the other and and how it becomes very meditative and. And you know, there's when you're when well, you're out why, there. Why is yours meditative and my meditation full of expletives? <laughs> when I'm grinding one foot, one half a foot, one half a foot in front of the other, you know, you know what I'm talking yeah. about. Why? Why is my meditation yelling and screaming and wondering why I did this? And yours, you know, you're Zen. What's up? 
I, you know, maybe just, just the, I, I assume it's just the wire, but, uh, but yeah, I, I, you know, I just, I love it. I love it when it gets difficult and I have to, and I have to breathe just in the same way that I loved it in eighth grade after I played bas I played basketball up until eighth grade, but I really wasn't even good enough to be playing in eighth grade. But, uh, uh after a really bad game, the coach took us out of the field and he made us all run, run horses on the football field, uh, for forever. And, uh, and I was one of the last two people standing. The rest of the, the rest of the guys were on the ground throwing up and, you know, falling out. And what I realized is that, you know, okay, there's something inside of me that I can go, I can go longer than other people. And so I guess the satisfaction of being able to do that. I got it. Okay. Now listen, he said run horses in Texas. When the coach tells you to run horses, he means literally there's, is a herd of horses out there somewhere in a field and you, you got to chase them down and you, you don't, you don't get to go home till you slay a horse and do uh, you capture a horse there. All right. Listen, let's walk through the seven summits here for a minute. You've done them all. Just give me a quick run through, you know, each one where they are and, uh, quick bullet points on, you know, what was cool about each one just to get that backdrop and we'll start to move into, uh, your training. You're, you're going up Everest again. You tried once before. Can't wait to hear about. The first attempt, I got questions about that. I want to know what you're going to do differently on the second attempt, but set me up with the seven summits and bullet points. Well, now I've actually only done, I've only done two of the seven summits. You're I'm, aiming for all of the, okay, Mike, let me, aiming, yeah, let me correct this. You're aiming for all of the summits. That's you, correct. You've got two knocked down. Uh, th three is about to happen. And that's happening, by the way, just to, I just, you're leaving when? April 7th for Everest? That's right. I'll leave April 7th, uh, and the, uh, the got my guides, um, projected summit date. And of course, I, I learned last year, this is, this is very fluid, but, uh, and I, and I want to, I want to tell you a little bit about the, the weather windows because it's, it's oh, fascinating. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We got to talk all about this. Happens. Yeah, we got to talk but, all uh, So give me the two that the, you've done. So, okay. So I've, so I've done Denali, and just a few weeks ago, I, uh, I summited Kilimanjaro. Um, in Africa. So, so the highest peak in North America and the highest peak in Africa. And, uh, and then there's, uh, Elbrus in Russia. Uh, and then, um, oh, Aconcagua. Oh, Aconcagua, go ahead. Yep, go ahead. In, in South America. Uh, Karsten's Pyramid. There's a, there, there's a debate between whether Karsten's Pyramid in New Guinea or the one in Australia whose name is which name escapes me right now uh, I've kind of I've tended to go with the the list that says that Carson's pyramid is the seventh summit so then you've also got uh, Mount Vincent in Antarctica and then of course um, Mount Everest All right, so go ahead yes go ahead so you know so the, so so my my next one coming up is Everest and then and then you know after we'll, we'll see after that but uh um my my goal is to ultimately, of course, over the next few years, get all seven. All right. Uh, so just backing up a little bit, just a little bit here. So of all of the things that were appealing to do, climbing somehow, some somehow melded with you, that somehow grooved with you, and that just seemed to th be the thing you wanted to do. Right. All right. Well, I guess I can go with that. When I, I used to be a swimmer, I competed, and um, somehow sprinting. 
grooved with me. I didn't, I just knew I didn't want to do anything more than a hundred yards, hundred mm-hmm. meters. So maybe it's something like that. Uh, you just know, you just sort of know what you want to do. All right, listen, you're training really hard right now. You're getting ready for a second attempt on Everest, but let's talk about your first attempt here. What did training look like for the first attempt? And tell us, uh, about HACE. Tell us all about H. I'm going to spell it out here. H A C E, which is an acronym for something. We'll let you tell us all about and what what's it like to experience that. But take us through the training because I want to compare your training now, then rather to what you're doing now. If there's anything yeah. different, maybe the same. Um, but uh, what happened on that first attempt? Yeah. Well, so really, the the training for Everest started right after I got uh, got off Denali, and and that's that's important because. Um, I, I train with a coach, uh, out of, out of, uh, Missama, Washington named Scott Johnston. And Scott's part of a group called, uh, Uphill Athlete. And they're considered by many to be Scott Johnson and, uh, and his partner, Steve House. Uh, they're, they're considered by many to be the, the, the leaders worldwide in, uh, in training for mountaineering and ski mountaineering and, and just anything where you have to go uphill. And, uh, so Scott's been my coach since about three months before Denali, and on Training Peaks, I don't, I don't know if you ever if you ever used Training Peaks. I don't think so. No, no. Uh, okay, Training Peaks is an app that that they use, and uh, and one of the one okay. of the tool- I know the app. I haven't used it. I do know the app. Okay, one of the one of the tools on that app to sort of measure your fitness is called it's called CTL, but it's 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 really best I can tell it's a measure of, of how much work you've been doing, and so before so really you want to you want a CTL for Everest um, around a, a hundred or better, and a CTL uh, is essentially it's the uh, the measure of how much work you've been doing, so uh, so a hundred is kind of a good kind of a good score. All right. Before Denali, my CTL was only about 60. I'd, I'd, I'd been, cause I had just started with him and so he was, he was having to, having to build. I'd been, I, before that I'd been doing a lot of CrossFit and, uh, and things like that. I hadn't, I had, I had taken several years off from climbing and, uh, just because of some life circumstances and, uh, and had gotten back into it and started working with him. So my, my fitness was not great when I went to Denali and I, and I, I look back now, I'm, I'm still I'm kind of surprised that I was able to to summit but after Denali I, I I you know I guess he ramped up my training as my aerobic base became more sound and I became more fat adapted you know my body was using I was doing a lot of fasted workouts so that my body would learn to use fat for fat for fuel first as opposed to to sugars because as you know at altitude there's not as much oxygen so you can't use sugars as efficiently as you can fats yeah, you're doing so, a hyper ketogenic diet to prepare for being <laughs> up in an atmosphere where all you have is fat to eat. Exactly. You know, for, for your body to work on. Exactly. And so, so during that, during that next, uh, nine months from, you know, from whatever that would be, uh, July of 2016 until April, until the end of March in 20, and uh, or 2017 till the end of March of 2018, I, uh, my CTL got better and better and was up around a hundred when I went to, to Everest the first time. And I, and I felt good. The, the, I think one of the things, well, before I tell you what's different now. So I went to, I went to Everest and, uh, and I, and I felt good. The, one of the things that, and by the way, it was, it was, it was HAPE, not HACE. It's high altitude cerebral edema, which is HACE, and high altitude pulmonary edema, which is more of, you know, fluid on the lungs, uh, which is HAPE, uh, is what, is what I experienced. So, 
Um, on on Everest, you, as, as you know, you you, you fly into Lukla. If you come from the south side, you fly into Lukla at ten thousand feet, and then you hike for about ten days through the Kumbu Valley until you get to base camp at seventeen five. Now that that's a that's a three week trek, isn't it? Two it's to, two to three. Two, weeks? Two to three weeks. Uh huh. It's insane, man. Let me just ask you a question about that trek because when I read Into Thin Air, which was the book that put people like you on on the map, even though my brother's my brother's been doing this his whole life, but you know he's doing his thing, I'm doing my thing. It was Into Thin Air that really really got me curious about it. Halfway up to base camp, but just another segue here, not segue, but but side note here. It's just amazing me to me to think that it's two to three weeks just to get to base camp. And yeah. halfway to base camp, there's this, it's not a village, it's a yak hut of some sort. You probably know what I'm talking about. It's a, it's a place where people throw their tents up. It's a place to spend the night if that timing works that way. And there's, you can go inside and they're burning yak dung to keep the fire working and they serve tea. Do you know this little, this little hut spot that I'm talking about that's on the way up? I, I'm not, you know, we, we stayed in tea houses the whole way. So I, I'm not familiar with that. Oh, it just might be one of those, man. But what I, what I was, uh, when I was reading about these things and what's going on there, I, I, I was laughing hysterically, thinking, "Who would do this? Who would, <laughs> who would, who who would not only spend two, three weeks just getting to base camp where the trip begins, but uh, the work just to get there is crazy and amazing." And so, guess we're talking to one of those guys right now. Uh, what are those tea houses like? You know, they're they're really it's, it's that that track is so wonderful, and, and uh, I, I don't. You know, I don't have any business interest in any of the, any of the trekking companies over there, so I can just I, I would give a plug just for anybody anybody who thinks they might want to go experience that 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 base camp trek is is really amazing because these little tea houses they're uh, uh, they're they're just you know the foods for the most part is great and uh, uh, you just feel like you're really out in the middle of nowhere and and you are. And, uh, and the, the, you know, one of my favorite parts of that trek was, was Namche. And, uh, Namche is one of the kind of the, I guess, considered the, the center of the Sherpa community. And, and, uh, and the cool thing there is you can go in these little, these, you know, coffee shops and they've got, they, they, they serve, they serve lattes and they've got, uh, uh, soccer, you know, soccer on the, on the TV from all over the world. And, it's, so it's it's a little bit it's it's kind of a bizarre mix right there and in, uh, in in again in the Kumbu Valley, so uh, but the but the the biggest highlight for me when going through uh, on the on the trek was stopping to be to be blessed by the the llama in the area, and and that that was that was an amazing experience. So you walk in, it's it's uh, this this llama is chanting, and everybody's very quiet. There's this you know beautiful colorful monastery that you're in and and you come up and he uh he he, he chants to you he he puts a, a kata around your neck for for well wishes and he and he ties a ties this and i'm saying this because i'm holding it in my hand right now this yellow string around your neck with this red piece of cord on the end that's for uh you know protection from the from the from the mountain gods that are the mountain spirits to uh to you know grant you safe passage from the mountain spirits and and what you you know what you hear is that most of the most of the of the sherpa they they wouldn't take you up if you hadn't had this blessing 
So it's not, you know, no, nobody ever, I mean, I've never seen anybody or heard about anybody objecting to getting the blessing, but, uh, it's, it's probably sort of mandatory from the Sherpa. So that's, that's really the highlight. That and the puja ceremony, once you get to, to base camp, are sort of the, some spiritual highlights of the, of the, of the trek in. It's got to be something incredibly, uh, unique about that sort of, uh, blessing and, uh, spirituality of it and the bondedness that all of you go through as you get that because it's really a ties that binds sort of moment for you and the whole group and, 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 uh, and really sets the tone for what's coming up, which is a lot of hard work and putting your life on the line. What the hell makes someone want to climb Everest? Why Everest? I can, I can wrap my arms around Rainier, of course. Uh, I can wrap my arms around Denali. What makes someone want to do Everest, man? Isn't there a point where you go, "Hey, I'll hit all these other things, but I don't need to. I don't need to take on Everest or K five." Yeah, I, I think it. I think it's just you know, it's the highest point on Earth, and and who you know, to me, at least for the way I'm wired, I want to. I want to see the highest point on Earth. I want to. I want to experience as much as I can. Uh, while you know during this short time uh, here and uh, and being at being at the high at the highest place on earth just seems like it ought to be part of that part of that experience so i 'm going to ask a question that really answers itself um, it's it's it 's really that simple yeah. it's so much hard work it 's so much hard work it is such a grind and it takes something like three months to fully prepare and complete this whole thing between your training, getting to Nepal, getting to base camp, getting to summiting and then getting out. Isn't it like a, a to all in a three month uh, effort? Could be up to three months depending on the weather. And I can explain some of that. So, the most of the year, 50 weeks of the year, the uh, the jet stream is moving right across the summit of Everest. And so, if you if you went up there when the jet stream was 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 moving across the summit, you know, be 100 mile an hour winds, you couldn't you you know you'd be killed. Uh, but what happens is during this time of the year in in uh, April and early May. These tropical storms begin to develop in the Bay of Bengal, which is just east of of, uh, of India, and they and they move up through um, through that part of the world, and they and they begin to nudge the jet stream off the summit, and so so what happens is again the kind of the magic date the last few years has been May the twentieth when that weather window opens, and so. Um, Typically, you know, you have a couple of weeks once that starts. So it just depends really on when you, you know, when you start your summit attempt, when you finish. Um, you know, this year, last year, the guide service I went with, we went, I want to say we arrived March the twenty, the 27th. This year, it's April the 7th because, I don't know, this guide service just doesn't, they don't, they don't take quite as long to acclimatize, which uh, I'm, I'm kind of excited about because it's, you know, it's a long it gets to be a long, long time to uh, to be out in a tent uh, in Everest Base Camp. So uh, I'm excited that it's you know it's seven weeks versus eight weeks possibly this year. But at least they have cappuccinos now at Base Camp, huh? <laughs> <laughs> did you read into thin air? Uh, I did read into, into think, thin air. Yeah, you know one of the most shocking things. There's so many shocking things in that book. It's such a worthwhile read. People hear me talk about it all the time. Again. 
uh, whether you're a climber or not. I was not a climber, didn't have climbing in my blood, didn't have any of this stuff in my blood. When I read it, I had to read it because, you know, I, it, it was such a big disaster that year. This is a 19, 1996 failed expedition, and the disaster was so huge, I, I wanted to read about it to find out how something like this could have happened. We lost at least two of the best world-class uh, high-altitude athletes uh, ever ever known. Uh, their names will pop up. They'll, they'll pop into my mind in a minute here. Two of the biggest. And I was wondering, how does that happen? How do two of the best... How does Michael Phelps jump into the pool and die? You know? Right. And I'm just talking now about the, uh, the two of the leaders. Um, Scott Scott Fisher was the, was one of them, and I can't remember yeah. the, other, the other. Scott the Fisher, guy, uh, the guy, the guy, the guy who who talked to his wife on the phone, who was who yeah. was pregnant at the time. Oh, it's terrible. The, the Aussie, I can't remember his name right now. The, but but yeah, that's. I mean, I I read that book, and then and then all the all the books that were spawned by that book. Uh, I think Anatoly Bukharev, the Russian who yeah. who was Climb. Criti- it's called Climb, I think. Yeah, he. I think he was criticized by John Krakauer because he didn't. He wouldn't use. He didn't want to use supplemental oxygen the entire time. And I think. I think the feeling was is that he should have, in, in order to you know, give himself more of an ability to, to say he because since he was a guide to save some of the climbers, he should have been willing to use supplemental oxygen. He didn't. And then I think uh, one of the one of the women. Uh, who was on the trip? Who was a New York socialite? It was it yes, Sandy? Yes, 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 Sandy, uh, and she was the wife of the MTV uh, 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 creator, I believe. It was the creator of MTV. She's okay. the one who was hauling up her uh, cappuccino machine, which really made That's, the whole you know the whole thing look bad. But just a quick yeah. note on, Buk- on Bukarev. You know, I read his book, and it really balanced out. I think a lot of uh, what Krakauer said. It gave me a completely different point of view. As I say. Uh, and, and, and brought him back up the curve a bit. And all I've got to say about Bukarev is that I ended up thinking this was a pretty good guy. This dude knew what he was doing. His training methodology was exactly my training method. He trained the same way I trained, which is, you know, balls to the walls, really, really, it's the way you're training, really, yeah. really, really hard stuff. So that when he got to the event, uh, and Everest is probably never glorious till it's over. But but the stuff I do, you know, when you get to the event, when you get to the Grand or you get up to the High Sierras, the event is glorious as it's unfolding, as it's happening, because you've done all the hard work. And so it, it's less difficult. So I really appreciated Bukharev's book. It's called Climb or The Climb. I think it's called Climb. I thought it was a really worthwhile book. Did you check that out? I did. I read. I read that one. I read the one uh, the the doctor that the doctor in Dallas uh, left for dead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, uh, 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 Brashears, Doctor Brashears. No, no. no? Brashears is the is the uh, is the is the guy who did the the IMAX movie. Um, no, this was uh, oh, I can't remember his name, but I'll see uh, if I can pull it up here while we're talking. Yeah, Left for Dead is the name of the book, but but then you know, there were there were what there a were story three. that guy has. Oh, oh my god, unbelievable, unbelievable! And uh, so I read all those books that <laughs> that came from that, and, and I oh Beck Weathers, Beck Weathers, Beck Weathers, that's it. Oh my yeah. god, what a story! Yeah, so like you, I read all those books and was just really now now when I when I did <laughs> that, I had really no idea that I would be able to one day, you know climb or attempt to climb Mount Everest. So uh, I, I had no idea. So I'm, I'm actually very, very, I have a lot of gratitude that not only was I able to have, you know, have the attempt last year, but that I, I get to go back. Because one of the things about, about my first attempt at, 
up until that time, I had never, I had never failed, or I had never failed to, to to reach the summit on any of my climbs. I've been to South America, been to Alaska, as you know, been to been to Washington. And you know, Mount Rainier is considered by many to be the toughest endurance climb in the lower forty eight states. And uh, so I, you know, I felt good about that. I felt good about what I'd done in South America. I felt good about Denali. And then, uh, and then, so to so to get out there, and as, you know, as you know, Craig, because you just referenced it, one of the things that you do is you, you know, you take, you have several different, um, I guess, forays, you know, up the mountain. You go to Camp One, you come back, and and the crazy thing, as you know, about climbing on the south side is you have to go through the Kumbu Icefall every time you go up the mountain. And that's that's just a that's a pre-death zone area. That's an that's, area where people die all the time too, because because ice breaks off from here and just crushes people. That's that's right. Well, two 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 stories about that that uh, that were kind of kind of crazy experiences my first time and, and make me have a just even more respect for for the for the icefall. And you know, one of the things whenever you go into the icefall, you're getting up at two or three in the morning because uh, when it's you want to you want to get through there when it's still frozen because this thing moves or parts of it move two or three feet a day. And there's a whole special team of Sherpa called the icefall doctors who go in there every day and repair the ladders that they have to put across the crevasses. To, to allow people to climb to climb through, and so That's insane, man! You guys are nuts, man! You're totally crazy! You're you're insane people doing this shit. Ice doctors that have to go into the falls here, and uh, yeah, these are aluminum ladders that are that are, that are tied together by rope, and uh, and uh, and you guys walk across them really uh, with nothing on your left or right. You can fall right down into the. I mean, you're, you're roped, but you yeah. can still easily fall into one of these things. And now, one, how many people are in a group? Uh, it's, it's, well, typically, typically when you're when you're going through, I mean, it, it could be anywhere from five or ten, but really, it's you and your. It's, at least in the in the groups that, that I the group I was in, it's pretty much you and your sherpa. Maybe somebody else in their sherpa, but uh, but you know, the the to your point. The last time I went through the icefall before I before I got hape, I uh, I had gone through with my Sherpa and we were about a mile ahead and and he gets a call on his radio and we found out that our Western guide she she had come across the exact ladder crossing that I had just crossed she she fell off and but the rope caught her but it but because of I guess the the area where she fell it 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 like a pendulum it swung her into the side of the uh of the crevasse and even though she had a helmet on she ended up getting a head injury and that ended her trip she had to be flown back to the u.s she's one of the lucky ones man you know that, that's right and that's so, right you know that's kind of a funny thing to say you you'd say one one of the lucky ones is you know summoning and getting home and of course that's true but i say that in the sense that when you get damaged on everest you're lucky if if all that happens to you is you get flown out of there you, you or, or however you get out of there and you go home but the thing about that the ice falls too is that if somebody falls there's only one route correct that's right yeah there's only one one ladder crossing it's not like there's five and you know there's one group over here and one group is one and so if somebody does fall like this lady and let's say doesn't have an or does have an whatever the case may be you you it takes a long time to get them out of that. It really it causes two problems. Number one, the person's in trouble, and we got to get them out of trouble. So that's the most important thing. But that really slows down the trek. And something just like that, that and that's fairly early on, right? That's, that's oh yeah. Something that happens that early can totally affect you at at uh, at summit time. 
That's that's right. That's right. Well, the other thing that happened on that on that last time of going through the ice pole. So so by that point, I was you know I was a month in. I and I had done I had done two other acclimatization climbs. I had gone I had gone through the ice pole, gone to camp one, come back down to base camp, rested three or four days. I had gone up to camp two, uh, spent the night at camp two, uh, come back down to camp one, spent the night back down to base camp, rested three or four days. This this last this was really the last time the last acclimatization climb so so first of all we had I had that experience where I, I found out about about my western guide uh, falling in the crevasse but then uh, after we had, we had kind of cleared the ice fall and we're walking along this pretty pretty high cliff on our left side and my my sherpa was about 30 or 40 feet ahead of me and uh, and I look back to my left and I see I see an avalanche coming off this cliff and and it and I couldn't really tell. I was like, is that, are we in danger of that or not? But it, it wasn't, it didn't look real clear to me. But I thought, you know, I don't know, maybe some of that, some of those blocks of ice could glance off this way. So I yelled up to my Sherpa and I said, I said, Pimba, should we run? And he looked up at it. He took off running. <laughs> like, oh my gosh. So I took off running too. We ended up being okay. But it just, it was just a, it was just a pretty real reminder of those two things of, of how much respect one has to have for the ice fall. You know, you read all about that, but when you see it like that, you're like, okay, I, I get it. Cause you know, I, I mean, I felt like I'd been across, you know, many, many ladder crossings by that point and hadn't had any problems on any of them, but, that experience of my, of my of my guide falling in and then seeing that avalanche come down, uh, it just reminded me that this this is that's a dangerous place. Is it pronounced Kumba or Kumbra? Kumbu, K H U M U M B U. It's a couple things. I uh, how's your time? Oh, I'm fine. Okay, there's a couple things I want to just you know, stick on here if I can. Re- I'm not writing anything. This is too much fun for me. I'm not writing it down trying to remember stuff. But uh, describe what the ice falls look like. You know, it's it's a little bit like if you if you've seen a glacier and you you see a glacier where it's where it's just a bunch of like it's like a broken up river of ice, and and you're essentially crossing that. Actually, you're not only crossing it; you're walking up through it. You're weaving. You're kind of wending your way through that to get up uh, into what's called the Western Coombe, which is essentially looks like this this. You know, a flat place in between two, in between uh, Everest and uh, the uh, I forget what the other side is. You're but you're heading straight towards the Lhotse face, uh, up up through up up through uh, towards Camp th- Camp Two and Camp Three. Or is it is it anything like walking through desert badlands? Uh, I haven't walked through desert badlands, but I could I could see that there might be some similarity. There are different types of badlands, but that's to me those are the real badlands where, you know, you actually drop down into these valleys, and they're right next to you are spires and cliffs and steeps, and and uh, you got to sort of weave your way through these things as um, as in a maze, and um, they're they're crazy. You can get you can it's- get lost in those things. It's it's exactly like that. Okay. That's exactly that's a great that's a really that's a really great uh, analogy. The way you describe it is exactly the way it feels. You feel like again you're you'll dip down, you'll climb up, you'll cross a ladder. There'll be a big ice tower on one side that you'll move a little faster through in case it falls over. You know all those things. Now the the other trippy thing about being in the ice falls is you you unlike Badlands you hear it moving all the time. It's, it's constantly moving and flexing. 
that so you know that and you know that that moving and fluxing has killed people in the past your life's on the line when you're in those falls the trick is to get out of there as quick as possible but as safely you know as rationally as quickly as possible without doing everything too quick um what is it so what does it sound like what does that sound like you're you're walking through these let's call them these ice badlands of sorts and and it's moving and it's making these guttural noises and is it scary it, you know it's I, I I think I don't know have you seen Free Solo? Uh, I don't think so. Okay, when you when you can, it's it's the it's the it's the documentary about uh, Alex Honhold uh, uh, climbing El Cap with, without ropes, and it's just I'm Listen, pretty sure I've seen those things. They scare the bejeebers. I, I that may be they may be crazier than you. They, they, they definitely are. Well, one of the things about – if you watch the documentary, they, they put him in an active MRI machine and they, and they looked at his amygdala and they showed him a lot of, a lot of scary images. And what they found is, is that his amygdala, it takes a lot of stimulation to make his amygdala fire. Maybe it's something more genetic with me where maybe it's conditioned because he's done a lot of, a lot of really scary stuff. But I don't tend to get really scared – during those during those situations, I can remain pretty calm. The one thing I am going to do differently this year. Last year, I wore my uh, my my big. Um, they're called uh, La Sportiva Ole Olympic Mo- Olympus Mons boots, and they're really the eight thousand meter boots that you use for Summit Day. But they're about fifty ounces. And so uh, my my guide said, you know, you don't need to wear those boots when you're going up, you know, through the ice fall. So I'm going to wear. Another a lighter La Sportiva boot that's about half the half about twenty five ounces versus fifty ounces and uh, and so you know I'm excited about that because I'll be I think I'll be able to move a little faster. Let me ask you something too about this. Uh, my mind's racing on this. Uh, would you do me a favor uh, before we move on here? You touched on how you acclimatize and uh, it'll help as we move on in this chat here, understanding what you're doing and what's happening, where you're doing it. Would you mind just real quickly without the details, just explain the acclimatization process all the way to summit. So you said base to one, one to base, base to two, two to one, one to base and take it from there. Yeah. So, and then, then the last, the last thing you do before the summit day is you want to, and this, and this is what I was doing when, when, uh, on, when I, you know, when the Western guide fell on the, fell on the crevasse and I saw the, uh, and I saw the, the avalanche come down is the last thing you want to do is you want to go up and either, either tag camp three or maybe sometimes depending on the weather, you might sleep at camp three, camp three and then come all the way back down. And camp three, if I remember correctly, is now, somewhere on, between. Hold on. Camp three all the way back down to base? All the way back down so to base. So it's always right. camp base, next camp base, next camp base, next camp base. Sometimes you'll you, you like if you if you go all the way to camp three. I didn't make it this last time, so I don't I don't recall. But I want to say you might stop for a night at camp two or camp one before going straight back to to base camp. Um, but but you happens- always end up back at base camp during the acclimatization process. So what I'm trying to convey here to people is. This is, again, the kind of thing I do is I just go straight up. You, <laughs> you're, not, you know, you're not just going straight up. You're not even going close to straight up. How many camps are there? Five? There's, no, there's, there's four there, camps. There's four camps. So you hit all four of those, and, after, and, by the, and when you get to the fourth camp, 
if, if you can, you'll spend a night there too, if you can, and then go back to base camp. So it's so much, you'll correct me here, but there's so much work involved just to get to the summit. Cause I don't think people realize what it takes. Yeah. Well, it will actually camp four will typically be just a place to rest for a few hours before moving on to the summit. But you're, but still, but here's another, here's another piece of this that, you, that you'll find interesting is that in, in, so my, the team I'm going with this year, the guide service I'm going with, uh, and, and this is true of many of the guide services, but one of the things that, that you'll, that you'll do, the, the helicopter service has almost become a little bit like a taxi from, uh, from Namche or even Lukla to base camp and back. So if you get sick in base camp, your body is going to be so much slower to heal at 17.5 and, and for sure at anything higher than that. But even at 17.5, your body's not going to heal real well if you get, if you get, uh, some type of congestion, which you don't want to get because you can get hape, uh, or, or anything else that if you get sick, you're gonna you're gonna spend a couple hundred bucks, and you're gonna take a helicopter down to Namche, and you're gonna and you're gonna stay in a tea house for a couple of days at, at I want to say thirteen thousand feet, thirteen or fourteen thousand feet, where your body will will heal much better and much more quickly, and then you and then you'll get flown back to base camp. So there's a whole di- there's a whole a whole new the last few years Processing. kind of process. That's right. Does, how does that take away from, let's say, you know, you, you get to base camp and you have some congestion, you're, you're, you point out, well, you don't heal as well at 17. That's where base is, 17.5? That's right. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and obviously it gets worse as you go up and we'll get to that in a second. But um, how do you prepare for an event where, you know, it's a two-month all-in deal, and you don't even get to you don't even get to Camp One. You don't even go through the ice falls yet because you've got congestion. You've got to fly back down to Nepal for two days and recover, and then come back up. Mentally, that type of stuff tears me up. It's very very hard for me to lose two days, and it's more than two days in this case. If I again, if I'm just doing high Sierras, it might be two days, and then I just start hiking. I just start doing my thing. You can't just start doing your thing. You've got to go through the climate climatization process again, right? Well, I, I think um, you know my, and I haven't I haven't asked my my guides this year about this, but but I, I think actually you probably you probably maintain your acclimatization, and you actually maybe even maybe maybe at the lower altitude you build more red blood cells before you before you come back up. I'm not really sure about that, but from what I understand, the the benefits of being of being well far outweigh the any negatives of going down lower. Oh, there's no, yeah, no question about that. No question about it. I'm just talking about the mindset in that, you know, for a guy like me, I'd be going, son of a bitch, two days well, away. It's a great, that's actually a great segue into what happened to me on the way to Camp 3. Yeah, what happened? Let's get there. So, yeah, I was, I was, uh, I left Camp 2. This was, the, again, this was the last thing, my last rotation before going back to base camp. And, and on the way to Camp 3, I had not been feeling well. And I, but I, I thought, you know, I'm just going to push through because, like you, I felt I just didn't, I didn't want to tell anybody I wasn't feeling well. I didn't want to take a helicopter down. I didn't want somebody saying, uh, no, you know, we're not going to let you go. I, I don't, I had this fear. I don't, we're not going to let you go back up. Um, and, and all, I don't know. I just, I just didn't want to, I didn't want to risk it. And I, I mean, and like, you know, like you said, like you, you know, my mindset was I'm here. I, I, I want to, I want to push through right now. And, uh, so on the way to camp three, 
my body, it felt like, I felt like I was trying to make a car go 40 miles an hour to only go 20. And it wasn't, I'd never experienced this before. It was very, you know, it was very new. I mean, I've been through some tough, some tough uh, parts of Denali. This was really not that different from uh, going from 17 camp uh, up on Denali, uh, going up the Lhotse face to camp three. It's kind of a similar, similar type deal, uh, but my body just wouldn't do it. And, uh, and so I told my Sherpa, I said, you know, I've got to, I've got to turn around. I can't. So I went back down to, to camp three. They put me on oxygen and I slept on oxygen, uh, for one night and then, and then headed back down to camp two. And, and I, and I wasn't feeling better. I was, I was feeling worse actually. And, um, I started talking back and forth on the radio with the, with the head guide, uh, from my group back in base camp. And, uh, and I said, look, you know, if I get a, if I get a helicopter to come, because I said I don't know if I can get through get through the ice fall. I was worried, and I and I wasn't. I didn't want to. Not only did I not want to put myself at risk, I didn't want to. I didn't want to put my Sherpa at risk. And so I was talking back and forth several times with with the head guide and trying to understand kind of what the what the rules were. And what I what I finally figured out was is that if I got rescued at Camp One, my trip was over. And, um, and I finally came to the conclusion that I didn't have any choice, that I had to go ahead and, and get the, and get the rescue, even though, you know, never in any athletic endeavor I participated in, certainly not in one of these climbs, had I, had I essentially, you know, pulled the ripcord and called it quits. Yeah, but that's because so much of this kind of thing is not in your control. It's almost like poker. You know, there's, there's math involved in poker. You have to understand poker. It's a, it's a, it's a people game. It's a game of psychology. It's a game of math. You've got to know the game and, but luck plays a massive role in the outcome. Uh, right. And and I think you know what you're what you went through. It's the same thing. You don't have any choice when, in this case, bad luck kicks in. It's the same thing. Right. You you don't have a choice. You can't control that. And what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, if if uh, hape or haste kicks in, not only do you have to get lower, um, you might not recover from it um, uh, there on that trip, and you have to leave altogether. But I also understand that if you get low enough and you recover well enough, you can make another shot at going up. It's really just a hit or miss thing if hape or haste kicks in, correct? Well, no, that's, that's absolutely, everything you said is absolutely right on, right on target. And, you know, in, in, in retrospect, I, I wish, I, I sometimes wish I had pushed through, gone through the ice fall, taken a helicopter down to Nam changes to see. But, uh, but, you know, one of the things when I, when I got back to, uh, when I, when I got to, first of all, when I got to Kathmandu, they looked at my lungs, they found fluid on my lungs and said, you absolutely have hape. And I stayed in the, in the, well, I, I, outpatient i visited the hospital every day for a week to 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 check me out and uh, i was dehydrated i had fluid on my lungs etc and uh so i was there i was there in Kathmandu for a week came back to the u.s and i had remembered it all it all comes full circle with football right i remember when i was a kid having these horrible helmets in middle school that would slam down on my nose and so i went to an ent he looked at my nose and oh my gosh not only how because i don't i don't know how you've been breathing he said, not only do you have a deviated septum on one side, you've got it on both sides. So um, I had surgery. Um, I also had really bad allergies. I started treating my allergies. And, uh, and my numbers have just have improved so much as far as my performance. You know, I've gone, I've gone through the breathing training. You know, I didn't understand the whole the benefits of nose breathing. And uh, 
been a mouth breather my whole life. Started nose breathing. Um, started doing a lot of exercises to to enhance my ability to nose breathe, and uh, and, and so and then now that I and now that I'm using your supplements. You know, I've been able to tell. I've, I've been. I think I've been using it for about a week. I can tell from from my heart rate performance that my body is using oxygen more effectively because I've been able to do as much or more work at a lower heart rate. So I'm really excited about that as well. Well, uh, I appreciate the plug, everybody. That was not planned. That was not, no. <laughs> that was not planned. Uh, I never do that on any of these. Uh, I only did it at the beginning here because I'm excited that that Alta Fuel is going to go up Everest with you. But uh, that's it. The other thing is, though, with 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 Hape or Hace, they they feel bad, but when it's happening, you don't know what it is yet, right? So you could that, confuse it with just altitude sickness. It could, that's right. So it, it's so important. And so if it's altitude sickness, you might think you can brush it off. But here's the reality. You can't brush any of these things off. You don't get better going higher. You don't get better staying where you're at. But if any one of the – well, first of all, two are deadly. And altitude sickness is always a precursor, or, or if not always, often a precursor for hape or haze, right? So that's exactly yeah, right. Yeah. So if you get altitude sickness, you got to stop right there and go down. True. That's exactly right. And that's you know I was talking to, so I was talking to my the the guy that I that I selected for for this year, and one of the things that he pointed out to me he said, look, there were there were I think there were. Two, he and his brother, they're, they're twins from South America. They have this guide service, and, the, and this, these guys have been climbing for years. And there were there were the two of them, a couple of Sherpa, and I want to say four or five clients. He said every one of them took at least one helicopter trip down the Namche to recover from some type of congestion, flu, or something like that, to to heal and get better. And so, you know, that's one of the one of the things that I, I was I was really impressed by. That I was like, oh my gosh, these guys get it. They're like, okay, we're not gonna, we're, you know, we're gonna we're gonna respond to this right away and do what needs to be done. Like you said, get down lower, get well, come back. Yeah. Again, I'm going to use the poker analogy. I think it costs. It's nothing compared to what you pay. But I think it's been a while too. I'm sure this number has gone up, but it used to be ten grand to enter the World Poker Tour and try to play for the title. So. So the analogy I'm making is that people spend all this money to go play in these big tournaments that last a couple of weeks and, and, and so much luck is involved in whether or not they get to the final table or not, or even win. And you're paying seven to 10 times that. And right. the same thing is in effect here, whether you get altitude sickness or any of these other, Hey, we, or, or just what the, uh, uh, the young lady who, who fell in the, the, the Kumbu ice falls, you know, had to go cause she, she smacked her head even with a helmet on. So any one of a number of things can take you out after having spent all that money. How does that, uh, do you think about that? I, I do actually. The luck factor and, and the accident factor, I, just all that money, and it can happen in base camp. That's right. No, absolutely. Well, and, and I, you know, I talked to my my coach. Uh, really encouraged me when I got back, and I and I, because to to me when I got back, it became all about okay, how am I going to train differently? How am I going to fix my medical issues? And how am I going to be more intentional about choosing my guide service? And so, uh, you know, you've already heard a little bit about, about the medical issues. I got, I got surgery on my nose. I started treating my allergies. I, uh, I'll tell you about my training in a minute, but uh, in June, right after I got back, I, I went out to, to Utah where my guy this year, Willie Bodegas, uh, lives. And, uh, 
and, and one of the things that really that really hooked me right away, he said he said, look, I want I, he he stopped me like I don't know five minutes into our hike, and he said he said your your feet are all over the place. I want you to try to be very a little more intentional about where you place your steps because I know out here on this you know, out here on this you know two or three hour hike it doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But if you but you if you train yourself to be more intentional, you're going to be more efficient and you're going to have more success over over something like Everest. So that was the first thing I was like, okay, I, I like this guy. The other thing, we towards the end of the hike, he said, hey, by the way, if we get back to the house, uh, uh, I, I have something for you. So remind me. So we got back to his house and I said, hey, Will, you uh, you told me to you know you had something for me. So he brings out this rock. And he said, I took this off the summit of Everest uh, just a, just a, you know last May when I summited. And here, I'm giving this to you. This is for you to take back. So, uh, you know, I have this I have this rock right here in my backpack, and uh, and it's going to go. It's of course going in my in my uh, climbing pack when I go back to Nepal, and it's I'm going to take it to the summit. Very cool, very cool. By the way, just backing up a little bit, the two uh, you mentioned one name. I'll just mention them both again. The two at the time, Michael Phelps of of uh, high altitude climbing, the two world class crazy dudes that that had done this several times, Scott Fisher and Rob Hall. Yeah, and both of them died in that 1996 expedition that John Krakauer just. Do you know Krakauer was supposed to go the year before? He was supposed to go in '95. Didn't know that. He made a last minute, not so last minute, maybe just a smart decision. He just realized that sort of kind of the last moment that. Uh, he wasn't trained up. He wasn't ready. And uh, so he passed on 95 and said, look, if you send another expedition up in 96, I'll go. All right. Listen, what is what does hate feel like? What does it feel like when it's kicked in hard? You know, it, uh, for for me, it's again, it's like trying to make a car go 40 and it'll only go 20. Okay. You know, you're, stepping, you're stepping on the gas and you're just not getting There's any response. There. So it's more yeah. physical. Than, it's just more physical than anything else. It's not – you don't feel dizzy. There's nothing going on in the, in the, in, in the chest area. It's just all uh, just heavy physical laboring. That's the way it was for, for me. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, high altitude pulmonary edema is what that stands mm-hmm. for. Um, all right, so you're going up again, man. You you got kicked off. Um, hey, you know what? Uh, <laughs> I know what it's like to get kicked off a mountain too, man. I uh, different though. I didn't have anything like that. My my after I read into thin air, I insisted my brother take me up, you know, Grand Teton and do something like that. And I showed up utterly out of shape because he told me I didn't. He remembered me as a world class athlete. He said, "Oh, you'll be fine. Just show up. Everything will be good." But I was 20 years past that, you know. So. Uh, completely out of shape and blown off the mountain, carrying 50, 60 pounds. And, you know, the mountain doesn't care. That's right. It's like the ocean. It doesn't care. If you show up, it's all up to what, how you prepared and how you can think when something that you didn't prepare for happens. In my case, it yeah. was easy. You know, I just turned around. <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I was lucky. I felt very, very fortunate, terribly out of shape. I was not trained at all. I did nothing because I listened to uh, some bad advice from a very loving brother who saw me differently. Uh, but fortunately, they screwed up the window of opportunity to complete the climb where we were. And because they screwed up that window, we had to turn around and leave that particular mountain and prepare for the next mountain. So I ended up, you know, we ended up leaving that mountain and I ended up having to opt out of the trip because I was, I was a physical mess. So kicked off the mountain for non life-threatening reasons, but 
Yeah, it's tough out there. You got to train for it, which leads me to your training. What did you do then uh, uh, during your first attempt? Um, uh, and well, maybe the thing to say is, what are you doing now that's different, or is it all the same? No, it's it's really it's very different. Uh, probably the two the two biggest things I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of give you a a snapshot of the of the week. But the two biggest things that are different is my my endurance. Uh, workouts, a couple of them a week, are significantly, I, I feel pretty certain, fairly longer than they were last year. Uh, and then, and then also, I've been uh, Scott's been having me do a lot of a lot of muscular endurance work. And 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 the, the muscular what the muscular endurance work is, is looks like is this: one day a week, I'll carry a, a 70, 80 pound pack and go up and down the stairs of an office building for for an hour. And the idea is that the pack is heavy enough, the load is heavy enough, that it's not really about my heart rate. It's all about leg strength. And, uh, and so, Isn't that true? And so what, it's so true. Uh, it's so true. Even at, even at the lower elevations, it's so true. I have that same discussion. Sorry to, to jump in. I just want to really emphasize <laughs> that the reason it's not so much, you got to have strong lungs, but it's not so much about that because you can't move at any pace that's meaningful. You're putting a half right. a foot in front of a half a foot. So it's all about glute, quad, ham, Achilles and, and gastroc and, co- and good core, you know, really mm-hmm. first. And then, yeah, if there's room for some, some uh, cardio work, okay, let's get that in. Does that make right. sense? It, absolutely. No. So that's, so that's so on the muscular endurance work. That's, that's the first thing. The second thing is, and, and this started off very gradual, but at the kind of the, the peak of this work has been, um, first of all, wearing a 25 pound uh, weight vest and doing seven sets of 10 of, of uh, split jump squats well. and then seven sets of 10 of just, just jumps, uh, you know, squat jumps. Seven sets of ten of step ups on a box, uh, seven sets of ten of lunges, and then seven sets of ten of kettlebell swings with a 53 pound kettlebell, and then seven sets of ten of uh, goblet squats with a little bit lighter uh, kettlebell, and and along with some along with some uh, some core work as well. And and those those two so those two workouts uh, each week are kind of the the foundation of the muscular endurance work, and then. The the other the longer the longer work is uh, you know one day it's three hours of of twenty minutes on a fifteen degree treadmill with boots and a and a and a thirty pound pack and then moving over to uh, the stair the stairmaster and doing twenty minutes on there back and forth for three hours and then the other day is uh, uh, two and a half hours no weight. Just walking up and down the stairs, and then and then you sprinkle in a couple of uh, workouts that were like today of either a one hour run with a heart rate under 140, or or uh, uh, a 10 degree treadmill hike with a heart rate under 130, just depending on how it's programmed. So you know you you throw those two in, and that kind of gets you your at least at least in this phase of my training uh, six days of, of of work in a week. Uh, and let me tell you, you y'all can't see. Tom here. I can. We've got a video connection. I'm telling you, he looks like he just left the coffee shop. He, he looks great, man. He looks fit. He looks fine. Just got off one of these tough workouts and he's, he, he, he looks like he's ready for a workout, not, not having left a workout. But so these workouts are really, really tough. They're hard. They're fatiguing. Uh, you recover quickly, obviously, but still they're very, very hard to do and they're fatiguing. And 
Um, you've got to know that you've trained hard and part of how you know you've trained hard is how you feel when you're done. Um, but as some part, so that's, that's the simple part, but as some part of the training you do designed to also replicate the, the drudgery of climbing up Everest so that you're not just training to just, just to be fit, which is critical, got to be fit. And, and heavy fatigue is a function of training is a natural part of that. But is any part of that designed to also now look at, this is what it feels like on Everest all the time as you're going up. Is any, is it designed that way mentally or is that not part of it? Well, no, there, well, like, you know, doing, doing Kilimanjaro a couple of weeks ago was, was part of that. You know, we would we would climb uh, or hike or climb, depending on on the where we were in the in the climb, uh, four or five hours a day, and then the summit day was about was ten hours to get from from uh, seventeen thousand to to almost twenty thousand feet, and then all the way back down to ten thousand feet. So that was certainly part of it. But but another thing is, uh, you know, one, part of my training has been to spend a little bit of time in Boulder, uh, you know, climbing, you know. 2,500, 3,000, 3,500 feet at a time, and then and then jogging down on a lot of these, and then also uh, going out to Seattle. And kind of one of the favorites, at least for my coach, to send people to in Seattle that are going to the Himalaya is uh, is something called Mailbox Peak, where it's it's 4,000 feet almost straight up, and uh, it's just a great it's a great way to train for exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, I know. So, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so that's you know whether it's whether it was Denali or Everest, Everest uh, one or Everest two point oh, I've I've tried to you know throw in some of all those things uh, into into this uh, kind of gym work or road work. You know, on occasion, people will will catch me training either in the gym or in the pool, and I I um, generally as I'm getting you know six months out from something I'm doing, I start upping the intensity and I train very hard. And I hate it. There isn't anything about training that I like. Other than that, I know that if I do the work now, the event, as I mentioned earlier, is going to be much, much easier to handle. How do you feel when you're training? Do you have that that classic euphoria, the rush? Do you hate it? Do you see it as a necessary evil as I do? Uh, how do you view it and how do you feel when you're doing it? I, I think it probably depends on, on what it is. Uh, you know, I grew up, I, uh, I competed for a really, really to augment what I was doing in football, I competed in a couple of powerlifting meets and, and, and was, you know, being an offensive lineman, I got really strong. I could, at my peak, I could, I could squat 700 pounds and, uh, deadlift around 650 and, and bench about 425, you know, with a, with a pause. And so I got pretty strong back in, uh, in my, in my early twenties. And, uh, and so I, I've always enjoyed the gym. My, again, my brother, my brother started taking me to the gym with him when I was when I was eight or nine years old, and uh, I, I, I developed a real love for that. So I so I enjoy a good weight workout, um, and I and I like again probably for the same reason I enjoy climbing. Some of the some of the longer runs, I, I, I find them to be very very meditative. Um, some of this some of the stuff, I'll tell you the 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 heavy pack. For an hour on the stairs, it, that, that's the one that really feels a little bit like a grind. But it also feels like the one that's probably the best for me. Yep, that that's the one that's really replicating what you're going to go through, heavyweight yep. on the stair. All right. Um, as I said earlier, the the falls, the ice falls, really, uh, as as I put it, are a precursor to a thing called the death zone. Tell us what the death zone is and why it's such a 
such a look at when people climb. Some people think of you know climbing Everest as oh somebody climbed Everest and they read the story or some it it's it's a it's a life threatening thing to do every single time you do it. Your life is on the line in several places and probably arguably you correct me here none worse than the death zone maybe above the death zone i don't know the death zone actually there isn't anything above the death zone it's a death zone all the way to the summit until you come back down through the death zone again so what is the death zone and is and is there still the general rule of if someone is in the death zone on the ground you know unable to take care of themselves does the same rule still apply that used to apply which is I can't do anything for you because this is the death zone. There's no air here. There's no oxygen here. I've only got my own oxygen. I'm just about to run out of oxygen, especially coming down. I'm about to run out of oxygen myself. You can barely move in the death zone. You can barely get through it yourself. You're stopping and huffing and puffing. And so I'm just setting this up because if no one's ever heard where we're about to go, it might sound shocking, but... You have no strength. You have no power. Your body's been eaten away at. You have hardly any oxygen to, to save your own life just walking through it, just moving through it yourself, let alone trying to save someone's life. You can't pick them up. You can't drag them. There's really not much you can do in the death zone. That's how it used to be. Is it still that way? And, and what is it? To, you know, walk us through what it all is. Well, so as we, as we talked about, the summit of Everest is at 29,000 feet. And the death zone is, as I recall, is considered anything above, above 25,000. And the, the earmark of the, or the, of the death zone is that the, the, there's so little air up there that the body is essentially eating itself and that you, you really can't, you can't survive up there. You're not, you're not going to, you're, you're not going to live long if you stay there too yeah, long. Yeah, when That's you get why. to that point, it, it's either you're going to the summit or you're picking your spot to turn around because you can't summit. It's that that's, it's that's, that serious and dangerous, right? That, that's exactly right. Now, as far as as far as you know, the the idea that if you can't move, you're you know nobody's really going to be able to help you because they're trying to save themselves. I'll tell you, I'm I'm so amazed by the by the Sherpa. I mean, every one of the Sherpa that I was around, I just thought they were amazing people, and and uh, it's amazing how their their bodies have been. Uh, have developed in such a way over the over the many many years that they're able to do things at that altitude that other people just can't do. I, I personally would never want to say that I that that I don't think that they can that they can get somebody down. I I, I know what you're talking. Well, let about. me put it another way. Let, uh, yeah, I didn't put it as yeah, excellent point. The Sherpas can probably do it, and in fact, the Sherpas have done it. But you and I can't do it. Right. That's really what I right. mean by that. I mean, if you and I run into someone in the death zone that's in that spot, we either have to get a Sherpa on top of that or, or, or I you mean, what do you do? I mean, what a moral dilemma here. I mean, and oh, yeah. it's, it's both a moral dilemma, but it's also an impossibility. Mm-hmm. Why do you, yeah, no, I, what's up with that? Yeah, I, I think probably you're, you know, you're only, you, you know, if you're, especially if you're somebody uh, like me, who's not a, who's not a guide, who's not, who hasn't, you know, climb, have been on 20 or 30 climbs, you know, maybe somebody who's, who's climbed all the 8,000 meter peaks, if he or she were up there that high, that they could help get somebody down because they just would, or, or, or one of the guys like, uh, oh, the, the, the two guys, Adrian Ballinger and, uh, Corey Richards, who climbed from the north side last year, the last couple of years, one of them each year made it without supplemental oxygen. Maybe one of those guys can, could put some oxygen on and maybe help somebody down. But 
for most of us now, I think it's going to be a thing where you're just going to you're you're probably going to be told. Now, you know, I haven't been to the death zone yet. I was on my way when I got you're sick. You're about to find out, yeah. though. That's right. Yeah. That's you're right. going this time. I'm going this time. Yeah, we're saying yeah. that like it's a badge of honor. People are thinking these guys are crazy. Who wants to hike into the death zone? Well, mm. you want to do more than that. You want to hike into it, through it, and out of it. But That's uh, right. no, you got to do it, man. You got to do it. So I'm, I'm excited for you. I, I, you know, look at, oh, by the way, too, we are going to try, Tom and I are going to try if it works out. I'm going to be available, but he's going to try and reach out to me at periodic, uh, at, at periods during the climb and a uh, couple quick minutes of what's going on, what it's like there and what he's going through and, and then out. So we're hoping to have some satellite communication with Tom during this trip so we can, we can enjoy it with him. Boy, what a thrill that would be. I really hope that works out. No, I think it. I think it will. From what I saw last year, you know, like I said, I'm going to have a satellite phone, and uh, you know, there's the crazy thing about base camp now is there's Wi-Fi in base yeah. camp. Yeah, yeah. Base camp so, has changed. Uh, <laughs> yes. So we'll we'll be able to communicate. Don't they call it the Mini Hilton now or something like that? They have a they have a uh, generic you know, some some term for it now. I can't remember. Uh, you know, Hilton Base Camp. It's something like that now. Uh, because it is different. You used to go up there, set up a tent among, you know, which you still do, but tons of boulders and rock and a Martian-like landscape. But there's a giant mess hall up there now, and it's permanent, I think. And, uh, yeah, they make some pretty good food up there. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's really it's quite impressive. You know, the group I was with last year, we had a we actually had a shower. It, yeah. uh, it was it was so cold you didn't really want a shower, but you know you could make yourself every every few days go take a shower. Tell everybody what food takes tastes like at altitude. Seems like a stupid question. It's not. Food takes on a whole, whole different meaning up at altitude. What's it like? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you don't. You really don't want to eat. You know what they what they tell you is you better really. The food you take, you better really enjoy it, really like it, because you're not going to feel like Isn't eating. Isn't that I can, amazing, man? Yeah, I don't want to yeah. eat up there, man. I go through it every time. Yeah, and you're a, you're at a place where you have no choice. You have to eat. Mm-hmm. You have to force it, don't you? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm already thinking about how can I improve my food game so that uh, I do have food. You know, the best thing would be if I could get a uh, la barbecue to, to to ship in some 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 brisket, some brisket and sausage. But uh, yeah, I don't yeah. I don't see that happening. Yeah, la barbecue is one of the top uh, barbecue places here in Austin. They're always in the top five. You know, Franklin's is has been historically you know at the top here. But there's Snows, there's la barbecue, there's you know you know who's really good? Terry Black's exactly. in town here. Uh, so, uh, I think they're from from the southern part of the state, and they've, they've got a, an outfit here in Austin now, and it's it's really good barbecue. All right, listen. Um, I know we we keep talking about death here because uh, look, we're not talking about the Appalachian Trail. You know, we're not talking about the continent. We don't really, you know, think about death on on those trails. We're not dismissing them. Those are you know, those are difficult, long-haul hikes. They're treks. There's a reason why the word crown is after them, the triple crown. They're hard. Um, they're not at altitude. You know, they're just difficult. They're long, and you've got a plan. But, you know, there's no death really there. The only place you think about the potentiality of it, I think, is in uh, on the Continental Divide trails. You do have to be concerned at a certain point about grizzly bear once you get up into Wyoming and Montana territory. They're there and they do kill people. But it's nothing like what you're doing. Everest presents its own sort of problems. You not only have, you know, uh, 
the altitude to contend with, but you are dealing with death and you have to think about it and you have to be sensible about it. The ice falls will kill you. The death zone will kill you. Hape and haste will kill you at, at any point. Even at, you can even get those at base camp, can't you? At, uh, so, yeah. Sure. So the whole thing, it, it, boy, it's got to be so well planned and there's so much risk on the line. Um, with every step you take, which brings me to your wife, how does she support this? How does she cope with this? What's her deal here? Well, I'm not. I'm not married. I do have a okay, girlfriend. That'll though. do. Uh, my my girlfriend is. She's. You know, we, we've. Uh, we weren't together uh, when I went last year. I didn't. I didn't know her. Um, but uh, she. She. You know, she's very supportive. She understands. She. She summited Kilimanjaro with me. So she's she's very fit. She's done most of my training with me. She doesn't really have an interest in going to Everest, but uh, she she's very supportive. She's she's scared, uh, but she understands why why I do it. And one of the things one of the things that I haven't we haven't talked about is um, last year before I went the first time, I I raised money through a, through an organization called Water Boys to fund a water well in Africa as part of my Everest climb. And uh, and so when she and I were in were in uh, we're in Africa to climb Kilimanjaro. We visited the village where they're where they're drilling this water well, and so you know it kind of brought home a kind of a, a different why that we were able to that I was able to use that climb last year to to provide clean water for this village, and you know. You, you don't really – I didn't really – I mean I understood, but I didn't really understand. When you go into these villages and you realize that these people are walking 10 or 20 miles to get water, then that the water they get is really not drinkable, um, that it, it kind of brings it home. And, and so it, and it was that was very meaningful for her to see that. And, uh, and so I don't really have a specific thing like that planned for this time, but she does understand that you know with a lot of this – Climbing does come an interest in trying to also do other things uh, good for uh, for uh, for for people, and so I guess maybe she, I guess maybe she understands it's, it's kind of the way I'm wired, and she's okay with it. So she understands that uh, uh, your life is on the line with each step here. Yes, she, she does. Gets, she she totally. I mean, you didn't hold back, right? <laughs> oh no, oh no. Well, here's the thing. She's she's a smart woman. She she figured she, it out. You know she. She's read the books and she's, uh, she knows, she knows all about it. I'm curious, um, uh, as you two developed your relationship, uh, and she learned about what you'd like to do, did she discover the difficulty of what you're doing on her own and, and then sort of talk with you about it? Or did you bring her up the curve early on? You know, I, I think some of it she, she knew. She saw, she saw, uh, or she read into thin air, uh, and she's, she kind of, and she grew up, she went to Appalachian State and Boone, North Carolina, and grew up climbing some, and, uh, and I, I think she sort of understood. She's, she's under, she understands better now, and she also knows that I got, that I got hape last year. But on the other hand, she also knows that I was smart enough that when I did get sick, that I, that I didn't try to, I didn't try to push through. That's such an important thing. And um, let's just talk about that for a second now, because altitude does in fact affect your thinking. And I think part of what went wrong with Scott Fisher and Rob Hall, as I said earlier, you know, the, the Phelps of mountain climbing at that time was the thin air affecting their judgment and their thinking. And, mm-hmm. and I, I think at about, let's see, at about 12,000, 10, 10, about 12, 11, 12,000 feet, my speech begins to Slur. That's where I start to begin the effects 
uh, feeling the effects of, of altitude just on speech, but not on, on brain power. What do you think it is? And is it different for everybody? It probably is different for everybody, but where is it that brain power starts to get affected? So you make bad decisions, unfortunate, like Fisher and Hall did. You know, I, I think it, I think it it's probably is an individual thing. I know for me, like when I, when I climbed Cotopaxi in Ecuador back in the uh, mid 2000s, which is a little over 19,000 feet, I don't remember being on the summit. And so clearly I was completely dependent upon the, upon guides to make good decisions. How about that? Uh, That's crazy. But the next time that I went to 19,000 feet, which was, uh, uh, on Everest last year, I was fine. I, I mean, as far as my thinking, I, and, and I, I felt like I was, you know, had all my, and then again on Kilimanjaro at 19,000 feet, I felt like my, uh, my thinking was, was, was pretty clear. I would imagine that for a lot of these guys who, who have climbed more than I have, that maybe, you know, who have done a lot of 8,000 meter peaks, that they're even, they're even better higher. You know, when I, but, uh, when, when I got, Kicked off the mountain we were talking about earlier. It just blew me off because I wasn't prepared for it. Um, sometime after that, I had read a book called uh, by Bill Bryson called A Walk in the Woods, which again, coming back to the Appalachian Trail, is is a story about the author wanting to hike the Appalachian Trail. And again, this is at, this is at sea level. And um, I really understood as uh, it's a very very funny book it's a very informative book it's way worth the read because it's just a great story about how someone who who probably never was going to make it in the first place gave it a try anyway uh, phenomenal writer and you get tremendous backstory on the Appalachian Trail the history side stories things that happened there along with the unbelievable hilarious humor natural humor um, with this story and how it unfolded for this guy but one of one of the things he said was he'd run into a lot of the people, a lot of people who were leaving the trail. And this circles back to something I said earlier. I just want to get your hit on it again. Um, see if you have more to say about it. He said that a lot of people who were leaving, he'd say, "Well, why are you leaving?" And the response across the board was, "Oh, it wasn't what it seemed. It wasn't what I thought it would be." And my immediate takeaway was, "It wasn't what you thought it would be," because, as I said about you earlier. You get to see the pictures, you know, the smiling faces, the camps, they're eating soup, the, the treks into town to resupply. And you don't make any connection to the difficulty it is even at land level. It's hard work. The Continental Divide trade is, Trail is roughly, roughly six months and 3,000 miles. Same with the PCT, give or take. I think the AT is about twenty one or 2,500 miles. These things are hard to do as through hikes all the way through. And so when I got blown off that mountain, and then I read that section of his book. I thought, I get it, man. Because as I was going up Mount Moran next to uh, the Teton, Grand Teton, um, um, I was thinking, geez, this isn't what I thought it would be. This is hard. The, the fun that it looks like it is ain't so much fun. How many people who do what you do, spend the money, spend the time training, you know, they go through all the stuff they think they have to go through to get where they need to be to get to base camp and begin this trek and stop? Or is the cost of doing it, meaning the physical, emotional effort and financial cost, the kind of thing that they just push through because too much has been invested and they keep going? Or do some people actually say, shit, fuck it, man, this ain't what I thought it would be. I'm going home. You, you know, I, 
I think if it's a, a different climb than Everest or maybe K2 or some of those, you, you probably would see more of that. My guess is, or in sort of my anecdotal experience, is most of the people who come to Everest, you know, they they make a plan to train and then they follow through on that plan and then and then the only thing that derails them are things like hape or haste or some type of injury or illness that really forces them to stop. And uh, so I I don't think you see much of what I saw in Denali where the two guys just clearly uh, either they didn't know how to train or they had a plan but didn't follow through on it and then then just said well we're we're this is not what we thought it was we're gonna, we're we're out okay all right yeah uh, you know jumping back to Denali I think um, what a hundred have died there a hundred or so yeah. Yeah, people people die. People die on these. I mean, there's things happen. All right, this is morbid, but are they dying mostly from um, not just uh, you know hate, haste, uh, or are they falling? Are they fall? Are they falling off cliffs? Or are they freezing to well, death? On on Denali, from what I and I don't know if this happens as much anymore because there's there's so many so many more fixed ropes on Denali, but I know used to you would have a, like well, like there was this really steep section called the Autobahn, and it got named the Autobahn because uh, some German climbers, like a whole team of German climbers, slid off the side and went you know a couple thousand feet down and died. Crazy. Yeah. So. Um, so I think I think probably all of the above. What was it feeling like? Let's just uh, sticking with that first year. What was it feeling like when you finally got to base camp the first time? What was the? Actually, let's back it up. Even you, you land in Nepal, right? And from mm-hmm. Nepal, you take a, a a chopper to some location. Is that right? Well, no. You actually, you actually. Well, you can take a chopper. You can take a chopper, but uh, and actually, this year we may have to. Apparently. The Lukla Airport, which is which is considered the most dangerous airport in the world, it's it's kind of set on this on this cliff um, where that drops off about two thousand feet, and uh, I think it has some strange winds, that crosswinds that come in, and uh, pilots have to be certified to to fly in there. But uh, because of the of the rainy season or something, I think this year we're either going to have to take a helicopter in. Or we're gonna have to drive four hours to do a different town. You fly fly in or helicopter in to Lukla, and uh, that's ten thousand feet, and then that's where that's where the track Man, starts. The effort is so huge. I mean, just just getting there is is potentially nowhere near, but potentially life threatening too. Yeah. I mean, for God's sakes, crazy, um, such a crazy thing to do. I, you know, I've thought a lot about Everest, and I I think uh, just chatting the other day with somebody about it, saying, you know, it's just one of those things. I I I think I'd be that guy, you know. I don't know if I'd let's just say halfway up, I'd go, you know what? Fuck this, man. I'm going home. I want to go get some clam chowder, man, and you know, <laughs> some fries and a burger. I I don't know what made me do this, you know, in the first place. I mean, you've got to really want to do it. I'm a big believer in whatever you do in life. You've got to be crazy passionate about it because everything's hard and everything has hurdles and everything has walls and humps and not everything is a straight line. You know, you zigzag through everything and sometimes really hard. And if you're not passionate about it, you're not going to get through it. So would you agree that even you know, this is not something you just do because you want to stand on top of the world, that that's not enough? I, I totally agree with that, and I, and I agree with the, the the level of passion and commitment that's required in order to not only do it once you get there, but like I was saying earlier, to have the commitment to train. And and, and just to to throw in one more thing about my about my girlfriend, yeah. um, 
especially the last few months, she's been, she's trained with me almost, almost every day. And, and it just makes a big difference when you have somebody who holds you accountable in that way. So that's, and I I know not everybody's like that. Some people like to train alone and some people would prefer to train alone. But for me, it's just, it's been a difference maker. And and I I think you just have to know how you're wired. And, uh, and so it's meant a lot to me that she's, she's not only been willing, but wanted to come train with me. Yeah, it helps a lot to have someone drag you through that, that, as I call it, drudgery, uh, yeah. expletive-filled drudgery here. But um, how is it uh, – have you always worked with a coach? Have you always trained with a coach? Only only since I started that with Zanali. Okay. Um, and I just happened I just happened on the, the the whole coach concept, but I'm so thankful for it because I I didn't know what I didn't know. I I just thought, well, you know, I live in Memphis, so I've got to you know, get up, get on the stairmaster a bunch, and I've got to climb up and down a building. That's what I did for Rainier back in the early 2000s. I didn't I don't even know that they had online coaching back then. So I've been really thankful for for Steve uh, Steve House and Scott Johnston writing. Uh, it's called Training for the New Alpinism, uh, and it's called their, their company. There are their websites uphillathlete.com uphillathlete.com check it out yeah it's been really really thankful for those guys and uh the you know the the work they've done over the last i want to say 20 maybe 30 years has you know for them things that you know training in a fasted fasted state to get your body more fat adapted uh which which i do uh most days of the week um and you know, it's, it's just something that I didn't I didn't know anything about before I started working with those guys. Training uh, helps me a lot with people who know what they're doing. Um, when I uh, when I got to uh, you know, I had a failed uh, attempt on this off road you know map and compass terrain thing last year. It was an equipment failure that I caused. But <clears throat> when I showed up into the high Sierras to do this thing, I was excited and blown away at the size of it out there. It's big and it's wilderness quickly. It gets wilderness right quick and you're on your mm-hmm. own. Uh, but I was excited about it and, and it really makes you feel small when you get out into the wilderness and you see how small you are and, and how wild it is. Um, as I said earlier, it's like the ocean, you know, once you're in it, you know, I hope you're prepared. Um, but I was excited about it and looking forward to the challenge. I felt like I was slightly out of my comfort zone. Is it, Exciting in the same way when you're getting ready to take on Everest, or is there more foreboding? What is that like? Well, I, I think the first time it was a lot. It was a little more foreboding, especially when I got there and I real and I like you. I I saw the scale. The scale. Of it. I'm like, oh my. Yeah, it's just it's just so it's massive, and you and you get, you know, like you you get through the ice fall and you get to Camp One, and then you look up the the valley to Camp Two, and it's a long way, and you're not gaining very much altitude, so that's a that's a long kind of grind getting up there, and then you get there and you look up at the Lotsey face, and it's totally different. It's you know then it's a it's a steep climb like I talked about, and uh, so so. Yeah, it all it all kind of comes at you in 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 different ways, and and I now have the benefit of retrospect to to look at you you know ice fall, then the long walk to camp to camp two, and then you know looking up at the lousy face. So it's but but now you know now that I've I've been through that, I feel like I'm going to have a a different a little bit different mindset going into. It. I kind of know yep, what to expect yep, from yep, that. Yeah, standpoint. I totally get that's that's what 
Yeah. I mean, part of the failure I had was uh, I just didn't test out a pack in an environment I thought I could get away with it. And, and I mm -hmm. couldn't, I mean, you couldn't, it's just, it's just rough out there. It's just rough out there. Yeah. And if everything's not right, some part of your equipment, your body is going to talk right back to you right away and tell you it isn't right. Which leads me to, uh, you know, the next question here. You have, a, you have children, don't you? Okay. I do. How many? Uh, four. Right. And the oldest is? Uh, all right, so they're all young. They're all young. But the youngest mm -hmm. is? Uh, 14. Right, so how are they coping with this? Dad could go die. Sorry, folks. We're talking death again. But I'm sure they know what you're up against and they can grasp it. Certainly at 14 years old, years old you can understand this. Um, did they know about the hate problem and, and, the, and the potential consequences of that? And do they fully understand the fullness of what you're going into? Yeah, they, they did. They they knew about the whole thing. And uh you know, they're, they're, uh, I, th I think they're as supportive as they can be. All right. Would you let them do it? Yeah. There was a, there uh, was I a would. pause there, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Now, if, if they, if, if it was something that they, that they were passionate about and they were willing to put in the work, I would, I would encourage them. I, I would, I think I would caution them to, to be willing to put in the work. I wouldn't want them to just yeah. sort of go do it on a whim or yeah, anything. You can't just, as, as, as we know, you can't just, show up and do these things. Um, what's after Everest? What, what's the plan? Well, I think, uh, you know, try to, try to get three, the three of the remaining seven summits and I'm, I'm doing something, uh, Ellie, my girlfriend and I are, are doing, uh, we're sponsoring a program. There's a, there's a local rock climbing gym here called Memphis rocks, which is just amazing. It's this, uh, like Hollywood director named Tom Shadiak came into, uh, to a part of Memphis that, uh, uh, you know, a kind of under underserved, poor part of Memphis, and built this amazing rock climbing gym. And and so we went in there, and uh, and we and we uh, provided an opportunity for for six kids to uh, to to start a program that we're calling the Summit Program. And we're gonna and we we pick six kids that we're gonna take out to climb Mount Baker this summer. And the ones who make that, who want to go again, the next summer will go to Mount Rainier. The next summer will go to uh, Cotopaxi in Ecuador. And then kind of the, the graduation of this, of this project uh, for this group of kids is, uh, is Aconcagua. And so my goal is, is to the, the, the first group of kids that we take to Aconcagua, that'll be when I complete the seven summits. Very cool. Very, very cool, man. You've, You've done a lot of stuff. You're an amazingly accomplished guy. You've seen a lot of the world. Um, any, you know, I like to ask this question, any, uh, what I learned from that, the, 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 what I learned from that was I'm a scuba diver and in the back of a magazine I used to read, there was this single page with the heading, what I learned from that. And it was somebody's story about something generally that went sideways that they solved or they got through um, and, uh, had a major takeaway or life lesson from it. Is there anything, is there anything that you've been through that really shook you up or for better or, you know, in any way, shape or form that, that, that gave you a big, you know, what I learned from that moment? I, I think the, the biggest thing for me is what, whatever, whatever it is that you decide to do, be intentional about it. So, you know, before you go in, it's a little bit like we talked about earlier with, with, uh, with unique ability. You know, think about what you're, what you're best at and, and what you most love doing and, and do that. And, and then, and then do that, uh, as best you can. 
And I think those are the kinds of things that are going to bring happiness. And, I, and then I think also, you know, I, this is this is I think this is real important because I do I I tend to to try to be just like that, try to control a lot of things. And one of the things I was talking to Ellie about uh, was, you know, what what do I want to do? What do I want to do next to try to be something that's 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 maybe is something for others and has some significance is not just for me. And, and she said, and she said, well, you know, why don't, why don't you kind of just put it out there, you know, either, either in meditation or in prayer or, or whatever, put it out there and see what kind of, what kind of comes back, you know, comes back for you uh, from a kind of a higher power perspective. And, uh, and, I, and I'm telling you, Craig, it wasn't two weeks later that I was I was at Memphis Rocks and started talking with one of the management people and this whole summit program idea just sort of developed in front of our eyes. Oh cool. Oh cool. But that does involve climbing. It does, but it's more but it's more but it's more about it's more about the development of these kids through through climbing. Yeah, no, that's great. Totally, totally cool thing to do and we should uh, talk more about that in another in another get together. But what would you do if uh, you couldn't climb? Uh, well, I, you know, I would, I'm, I'm a, I'm a public speaker and I love, I love talking to groups about, uh, you know, being again, living with intentionality, you know, figuring out what you're best at and what you most love doing and what your quote unquote unique ability is. And, uh, and, and I, I love that. So I would probably do more of that. I probably will do more of that regardless. Walk me through, if you wouldn't mind, and we'll close out with this. We'll let it go at this. What's it like? at any of these high camps when you're doing your acclimatization, acclimatization um, and you're spending a night, what does food look like there? I know you've got to dial in your food and you've got to figure out what's, what, what you're going to eat, but do you cook there? Do you actually light up stoves and cook? Or do you pull you know, high-density bars out of a pack and defrost them to, to the extent that you can and eat those? What are you doing? Well, the, the, the Sherpa actually actually do uh, cook some food. I don't recall exactly what it was, those higher camps, but it was, you know, it, it was, uh, you know, it evolved some, it's some, some soup and some, you know, some, actually some solid food. It was, it was pretty, it was pretty good. You know, again, for, for the limited appetite one has that high. Uh, and again, I, I'm working on some strategies right now to think about what else I can do, you know, what else I can take with me that I, that I really will love to eat up there. Yeah. I guess that's what I was getting at earlier when I was saying, tell us what it's like eating at altitude. The fact of the matter is that, Oftentimes, uh, the simplest thing ends up being the most wonderful thing because it's such a trying and difficult environment that stopping and eating, uh, you know, having your evening meal or whatever the case may be, really, really tastes like filet mignon sometimes. Until you get right. until you get back down to earth and have real filet mignon, and then you know, <laughs> but it does taste great up there. I think. Hey, man, uh, you know, I could. I keep you here forever. This is this is just great stuff. Um, very excited for your trip. I know it's going to be a success. No hate, no haste, no altitude illness this time. Um, we all wish you the very, very best. We're going to get this podcast aired uh, before uh, you go so that uh, people can sort of get ahead of the curve. And uh, hopefully we can chat when you're up there and, and uh, get some progress reports and hear how you're feeling and, and check in with you. It would be amazing to do that. We'll broadcast it. We'll get it out there and 
uh, live. We'll do it live, and um, I think it'll be a great thing to do. And I'm just very excited for it. And I'm thrilled you could take the time and spend all of this time. This, I told you, I told you this was an important interview, and we had to we had to clear the deck so we could get it all in. So I think we got a lot in, um, and we got to do a post uh, uh, once this thing is over. We got to get together and do a post interview and talk about what happened and what it was like because you're going to have a great success, and we all want to hear about it. Craig, that sounds great. I really appreciate you having me on, and I, I appreciate the effort that you've made. And uh, in, in, again, everybody, I promise this is, we did not discuss this. Uh, <laughs> these supplements that are that are again intentionally focused on altitude athletes, and uh, I mean, I know there are other people benefit from them too. But for, uh, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to continue using them, and I, I appreciate uh, the guidance you've given me so far, and your offer of continued guidance. And I look forward to talking with you when I'm in Nepal. All right. Hey, man, I just a thrill, just a pleasure for me. I'm so happy. Can't wait to get this up. Can't wait for, for people to hear it. Tom, thank you so much. Tom Lawrence, Everest Expeditioner, is going to make it this time. And uh, thanks so much for taking the time. And we'll do a post interview. We'll do some talks when you're on the mountain. And thanks for taking the time, brother. It was great. Craig, Craig thanks so much, man. My pleasure. Take care. Bye bye. Take care. Bye.